Hello, and welcome to another episode of Fish Tales. I'm your host, Lee Trout. And today, my guest is Haroon Sarang. Would you like to introduce yourself, Haroon? If I must, if I must. Hello, Lee. I'm Haroon Sarang. I uh, live a double life as a software engineer and a music producer and, and mixer. And living here in San Francisco, California. Sunny San Francisco or cool and crisp San Francisco? Uh, neither, actually. Today it is cool gray, but not crisp. It tends to be somewhat humid, always being close to the ocean, though staying cool. It's, it's, always, it's always sweater weather here. Sweater weather. I like it. Uh, my favorite time of the year is hoodie weather. I used to have a Jeep Wrangler. And would take the top off in the fall. Take the top off, take the doors off, put a hoodie on. That's much better. That's in much more enjoyable than the middle of summer. So it's like you just bake in a convertible in the summer. But I thoroughly enjoy it in the fall. Yes. Well, then maybe you should be follically challenged like myself, in which case it's always hoodie weather. <laughs> I haven't heard that before. All right. Follically challenged. Uh, for people that are not watching, Haroon doesn't have much hair on the top of his head at the moment. And you said you gave yourself a haircut today, just before Abs getting on. Absolutely. Like I say, I got a face for radio. That's what my mom always told me. So here we are. <laughs> so we were talking before I pushed record about what we want to talk about. And you said we could do software engineering chats uh, because that's relevant or more interesting for me. Or how, how you worded it just now. But, you know, this isn't about me or it's not about what's necessarily interesting to me in that sense. I'm happy to talk about software engineering. but I don't know. You're doing a lot of stuff with the music production and, and all that, too. So you tell me where you want to go. What do you want to talk about? Ultimately, I think process and interfaces, which would be a very, very universal aspects of both music and music tools, as well as for software engineering and how it relates to teams. What's been really interesting on the music side is similar to everyone working from home, remote work. With COVID, these world-class musicians, uh, very lucky to work with the people with whom I work, they got grounded from all of their tours, some of them barely escaping certain countries while lockdowns were happening, which meant that all of these folks had to have the capacity to record themselves at home and then, you know, via, via the web, send their tracks into other people. So it was an asynchronous flow for music creation. And I'm sure this is very similar to what a lot of engineering teams are facing. And some have been doing it for a long time. So it's nothing new in the engineering world, whereas on the music world, it's far more new. I think that's interesting. I've told people through the pandemic, the companies that I've worked with and people I've talked to that are era quote unquote remote like remote during the pandemic was not what remote work has been for me. I've been remote almost entirely, almost 100% for a decade since 2012. And the what was remote for many years and my experience of remote and what we were forced to do through the pandemic were very, very different things. I feel like, you know, there was this added pressure uh, for people that either, you know, didn't have an interest in being remote at all. Um, cause there was quite a few people and especially with managers, like I'll throw that out there. I think managers, especially they kind of rely on being in the office, being around people. Um, some people still do the kind of the butts and seat management. And I think it was a big shift and a big shock for a lot of people. 
I don't know much about music production. Do you think that's a similar thing? Do you think that there's there was some like, oh, we're you know used to going into a studio together and used to being around each other? You think they've sort of faced a shock and awe? I would say that there are quite a few shocks to the system depending on the genre of music. First, from a technical aspect, just from a straight tooling aspect, one of the more difficult things to record is drums. Depending, again, on the genre, drums can require up to... I shouldn't use the word require. When you're recording drums, in most cases, usually about three or four microphones are doing most of the heavy lifting. And the rest of the microphones, which can go upward to 20 or so, are are used more for ambient coloration or spot focus on a particular aspect of the drums, like the toms bringing something up for a fill. But one of the lesser thought about aspects of recording the drums is the room itself. And the room is a, is a passive part of the instrument because the drums are going to sound completely different in a small room, a, a, a room with hard floors and ceilings and walls, lots of glass. And as a result, the quality of what you would receive from drummers was all over the map. And I don't think it's it's fair to drummers that they would have to pay you know, thousands and thousands of dollars out of pocket suddenly to be able to record from you know, home or you know, so few people have a studio quality environment in which to record. <clears throat> so that's the technical aspect of how the, uh, you know, what musicians are facing. Now, as far as the synchronous versus asynchronous aspect, certain music forms like jazz, especially, which is conversational and real time. A lot of folks don't differentiate much, at least casual listeners don't differentiate much between the idiom of jazz, what sounds like jazz, versus the actual practice of jazz. And the practice of jazz is spontaneous. It's happening in real time. That what one person will play in the moment will affect how the rest of the musicians are also playing. And they're passing the ball back and forth. As a result, doing things asynchronously doesn't really, you can't do that real time stuff. Certain companies have tried to solve that with, video streaming and things like this, but there's always some hitch to it. So in summary, the, there's a technical aspect that I think engineering has solved a long time ago with everything from versioning systems, etc. But there's also certain ways that thoughts can be created or elevated in a group setting that at least music, which is bound to time for most forms of music that has to happen in person to be the same way. You mentioned like versioning control. Like, is there a one-to-one -one of something that you were thinking about when you said that? Like, is there something more like, did you have something physical in your mind about music production that you were thinking of like comparing to version control? My thought regarding version control was that it allows a way for people to collaborate, to contribute thoughts and review other people's thoughts asynchronously. It's not real time. And it's really baked into the practice of software engineering. There really isn't, and I don't think off the top of my head, there's an analog for that in music. There are some 
sort of version control things that one can do within applications like Logic Audio, where you can have alternate takes of such, but it's not a collaborative aspect. It's just for, for your own housekeeping. That's interesting. Sorry, I think you saw me. I was going to say something. I might have derailed you there. Well, is, you know, are there any multiplayer music editing tools out there? Has anyone like attempted to solve this problem? Like, is there Google Docs for music production? There kind of are. It's it's for the music production side of things. It's usually an asynchronous process for people to review what has been done, and some companies have done that. Forgive my memory. I don't remember the the latest batch, but similar to the way in SoundCloud that people can comment on a particular section of music, there are tools to do that in a, a real time setting. In, in a, excuse me, in a synchronous setting, there are synchronization tools in music platforms like Ableton Live, for example, that can sync up multiple computers and multiple suites. But that's usually more to keep everybody on the same tempo clock. It's not really about collaboration. So I, the version control systems are inherently asynchronous. So it's it's not a it's not fully congruous. You mentioned something. I want to go back for just a second. You mentioned for drums that there was you know minimum of like three microphones and up to twenty. You said three of them are doing the work. And I should ask just a second ago when you brought it up. Uh, what are the three? Like what what's doing most of the work? Is that just like a kick and a snare and something else? The answer is it depends. The most common setup for stereo miking, for stereo miking, you got to have at least two mics or two capsules in one mic, if you want to be technical about it. So that's two microphones right there. The third microphone is usually placed on the kick because the snare is a very loud instrument in the, in the drums. So that's why I say a minimum of, of three for a modern recording. You can do, of course, if you wanted a mono drum, you could, of course, stick just one microphone out in front of the drum set and try to adjust the height of the microphone for the balance between all of the drums. But because the drums are, are you know, physically static, they're not moving around the room, that you have to have the mic put in a particular place. A little piece of uh, Arcana, back in the early days of recording, the entire band would record with just one microphone. And when they would toggle between a, a vocalist, for example, and a soloist, there was a separate person in the studio whose job was to physically usher people in front of and away from the microphone, sometimes pushing them quickly to make space for the next person. Interesting. Yeah, I had no idea. Yeah, I, I'd kind of like to see a modern version where it would be like the band Kiss and WWE and a recording session fighting for this one <laughs> microphone. Cage cage match. <laughs> a John a John Cage match. So they'll do it very slowly. No smooth segue here. Uh but I did <laughs> I was curious about that with the with the, the three microphones when you said that. So uh you released a I don't know what do you say? You released a single collaboration? What has this been? Like a month ago? Two oh, months another, ago? Another one just came out uh last week. It's interesting that you call it a single. I'm finding that most artists nowadays with streaming services, that it makes more sense for them to release songs one at a time, as opposed to a contiguous body of work or a body of work that's intended to be contiguous in experience. And yeah, there's been a steady stream of different artists, uh, stuff coming out every, every week. Uh, most recent one is a 
a longer song called Chasing Time by the amazing bassist, producer, songwriter, Victor Little, who's a, a good friend and also involuntarily a mentor of mine. And that was an interesting song because it has three movements. The song is about eight minutes long. So that was pretty challenging to mix, especially given the luminary musicians on there from Paul Hansen, Thomas Pridgen, gosh, um, Lauren Lieber and uh, uh, Ruslan Sirota on keyboards. Of course, Victor Little on bass. Hope I'm not forgetting anybody in there, but it's just these musicians all have such high level concepts and ideas happening all at once in trying to balance them out to where the song has a, a, a focal point is, is another challenge. Because if, you know, if the saying is, if everything is important, nothing is important. Sure. Right? It's the yeah. Same concept in engineering that if, if every focal point in the music is important, then you have no focal point. So is, is there a struggle with collaboration? If everybody kind of has big ideas and, especially if they're all talented and skilled. Is there sort of a tension in that? Luckily for me, the Victor has a very clear vision of what he wants to hear. So that means I had a single point of contact for the team, so to speak. And it was Victor Little's project as well. So the other folks, luckily, I didn't have to have a conversation with somebody else of why they're keyboards sounded a certain way or why their bassoon sounded a certain way. So in that case, it wasn't an issue. Now, if it is a, this is a famously in a band issue where everyone in the band has an equal voice, that can be very challenging for the mixer that if the guitar player is present in the mixing room while this is happening, oh, I want the guitar a little bit louder. And then the guitar player goes away and the vocalist comes in and goes, the guitars are too loud, turn up the vocals. And that is, again, I see a huge parallel to team dynamics. It's just a human issue. It's not even an engineering versus musician issue. It's a human issue. So eight minutes, you said that presents a challenge too. Is it the amount of content that's going into something that makes it eight minutes long? Is it the sheer volume of content that makes it challenging? You mentioned a focal point, but like, what's more? What's the nuance to that? This particular piece has three main movements to it with different intensities. And the, the final movement is a very almost gospel-like outro, which changes tempo dramatically. A piece of music should have an arc to it. It should tell a story. It should, have, it should take the listener on a journey. Creating that journey in these three parts, you have to be intentional about where the, the, where the energy, the peak energy is going to be. When you're dealing with something in three movements like this, you you want to finish big with this particular song. But the big finish has that very slow, gospel-like vibe to it, whereas the middle of the song has a very frenetic solo where everybody's doing something very, very interesting. Thomas Pridgen is doing very subtle but intricate polyrhythms across, like he has two hi-hats going, one in each channel. Having to make the decision while mixing, it's like, who who gets who gets the big payoff here? And in fact, I made a, what I would call a, uh, something I would like to have done better. And it changed my view on mixing is I painted myself into a corner on this one a little bit and that I 
gave, I think, a little bit too much juice to that middle section. And when I was hitting the final end there, I, I ran out of headroom a little bit. I couldn't push, I couldn't push things further because I'd already kind of maxed it out a bit. So in retrospect, I would have started at the end and worked backwards. So I would have actually mixed the song back to front and then front to back. Interesting. So when you talk about headroom, are you talking about just overall volume levels? Overall volume levels, EQ levels, and also emotional headroom, right? I, 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 turned, I turned the more knob up too high and it just couldn't, it, it, to, to quote Scotty, she can't go any faster, Captain. How much of that is trusting your gut? How much of that is, you know, subjective? I mean, some por some portion of anything around this, you know, is going to be subjective. But what would you say? I mean, is it is it fifty fifty, seventy thirty? I would say in the moment, it has to be fast and subjective. A a analysis paralysis. Y y there's no room for it in the mixing process. And the key word here is process, because you have to find a way to pierce the bubble. Similar to an engineering problem, when you're trying to figure something out for the first time, whatever your process is, whether it's diagramming, or documentation, interface first, you know, whatever your particular process is, you got to get in and get your hands dirty in a particular way. And at the same time, you also have to have milestones along the way where you are less subjective and more objective and say, hey, is this working? So in the moment, it is subjective, but that subjectivity is also tempered with experience and a prescriptive process of what am I starting with first? Are, you know, I've never mixed anything in my life. I mean, I've watched documentaries. I watched MTV. Like I've seen stuff on YouTube. Billie Eilish has, there's a video about how like some tracks she has, has like a hundred different little clips of things and then they all get blended in and you would never know that they're like a hundred different takes. But like, so if you're mixing a whole song, are you mixing from multiple takes? And then you have, you know, it, basically you have tracks for every instrument. Like what, what, what is the song? Like what's it's like foundational pieces? Like how many takes is it just, did you just have one take that you were working with? Did you have multiple takes, multiple takes per instrument? So that that is a fantastic question, and it really also, I think, gets more into process and technology. Back in the old days, back in the old days, Sonny, you would you would record everything in one take. So the Beatles, Elvis, there might be alternate takes where they would record the same song one, maybe two, maybe three times. But it was done in one shot. There wasn't the idea that you would have to stitch together many different deliveries. Now, with multi-track recording, that allowed this idea of maybe being able to do things over because you're just maybe in this one session on this one track, you're just recording the vocal. Oh, there's something we want to fix in that. And even in those days, you would in some cases, actually physically cut the tape with a razor blade and splice together different reels of tape to make a contiguous take. Then you get into eight track recording and 24 track recording. Why I think this is important is there was 
a self-editing process along the way by the limitations of tracks. So you were forced to make decisions. You were forced to throw things away. When you got to the final mix or the final take of things, you weren't concerned with all of the other things that you threw away. You were only concerned with what was in front of you. So that was edit as you go and then mix at the end. With today's digital recording, you end up with so many different takes because you're not forced to make those decisions unless you force yourself to make those decisions. And I'm going to pause there for a moment and ask you, Lee, do you see any parallels in process to engineering or any other human endeavor of kicking the can and making decisions later versus a forced editing along the way? Yeah, it's like creative constraints. When you have everything and unlimited everything and you don't make choices. And yeah. And so I would imagine there's some kind of debt that you're incurring as well as you delay making these decisions and choices. That That is true. I think it's also worth mentioning that the the track count and also the expectation of the listener of what they're hearing is very genre specific. A pop song, the listener's usually expecting a degree of polish to say the vocal. They'll expect it to everything, but the vocal is usually the focal point here. And that is another reason why they'll have a hundred different vocal takes. And they might take just like one vowel from one word and splice that into another take because it has a certain polish or, or emotional delivery. And then of course, you know, things being tuned and edited in time using amazing tools like Auto-Tune or Melodyne, which are expected in those genres of music and other genres of music, say jazz or, or blues and, or rock, again, depending on the genre of rock, you might want things to be a little bit more raw, a little bit more human sounding, folk, bluegrass, etc. So how one uses the tools and the amount of gymnastics one has to do really depends on the genre. Hmm. Well, how many instruments an artist did you have on this eight-minute track? Like six, seven? Six or seven, but I think there might have been sometimes three different bass tracks going at once, sometimes four. Okay, why? Why would there be three different tracks? The In this case, the bass in some cases was holding down, was playing a solo, while so it was playing higher up in the register, while it was also playing in the lower notes to hold down the traditional role of the bass. And Victor is a very imaginative bassist that he will run his bass through distortions, envelope filters, all kinds of effects, almost making percussive keyboard-like Moog synthesizer sounds. I should say Moog, excuse me, I mispronounced his Bob's I always name. thought it was Moog. What is it, Moog? I believe it is Moog. All right, today I learned. And by the way, I realized I didn't directly answer your question about the editing process versus the mixing process. And you can't outmix a bad arrangement. So the first thing that always happens before you really start mixing is the edits. Sometimes for certain artists, there's tales, I think, sometimes two to four weeks just to edit all of the vocal takes for certain pop stars. Oof. And that happens usually before the mixer gets their hands on it. The producer will usually, usually handle that. In my case, I... I have a lot of trust with the musicians I've worked with for a long time. So they grant me a lot of latitude for me to mute things and, and present it to them 
trying to cut as much of stuff as I can. But so often they're like, hey, I, I, where's that cowbell that only happens on the uh, 35th bar? You know, like, what'd you do with that? I'm like, damn, he caught me. <laughs> and it's funny you talk about that too. There's, there's so much around this music stuff. Like, like obviously I don't understand music theory. I, I know what it is, but I don't understand it. And, you know, there's a whole language around music that I don't have. None of this is on the tip of my tongue. I can't talk the talk when it comes to this stuff. Like I'm good to say like, yeah, that song, that's the chorus of that song. Like I'm good to identify a chorus. I feel like that's, you know, the thing, but you're talking about, you know, that, that they would know at a certain place in a song to get down into bars that they, and I do believe that, that there are people that would say like, yes, that they know in their head that, yep, that the 30th bar, 35th bar, whatever I did do this one thing, or there is this one instrument or what have you. I'm, I'm, you know, one part, I'm just in awe of the fact that people can do that and can understand that. Like, I think there's just something broken in my brain. Like, just, I can't identify those things. Like, I enjoy music. I enjoy songs. I enjoy noodling around on instruments. I can't imagine something like going together. Like, I can't break things down. And of course, I've never tried. So I'm sure that's something that comes with like actually trying, but. Yeah, like you, you just, I don't know. I have so much stuff. And then I feel like, I don't know. I can't ask you really good questions because so much of this, I'm still just like trying to process like what all of this is too for myself. But you go ahead. You're going to say something. Well, let me ask you a question. When you are coding, are you able to keep the abstractions of other pieces of code in your head while you're coding? Sure. So like while you're, while you're coding up that one piece of Lego, are you, you know, you're, you're familiar with where that Lego is going to fit in your death star of code. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> so that skill, how much of it was learned? How long did it take you to do that? Can you remember you've been a, a high level engineer for many, many years. Can you remember back to when that was a limitation? Oh yeah, of course I can. All right. And, and, and the next question on that, can you think of any conditions now where the code is in a particular state that makes it more challenging to hold those abstractions in your head? Well, sure. When there are no abstractions. Yeah. When there's no plan. Yeah. Or, or when the abstractions are so mixed in ways that don't seem logical to the way your brain works, right? Yep. So I would say music is the same way. A couple of stories, recording with Dennis Chambers or Thomas Pridgen, these guys, while they're playing, and these are both legendary drummers, while they're playing, they can automatically mentally tag and recognize the most complex ornamentation or fills that other instruments are playing in the music after one listen, that you hit record, and they'll go back and, and play through and be able to match and echo and play with it almost like it's in real time. And similarly, you know, not to not to name drop, I got to record with George Clinton once, and he did the same thing. We were recording onto two-inch tape, and he would go back and harmonize with himself. And he did this after he got done playing a four-hour concert. So we were recording all the way through the night, and that ability to remember what he had done at one particular spot, he never had to say, wait, 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 pause it. Wait, what did I do again? No, he just knew. So I think that it is a very, very similar skill to hold those abstractions in your brain. And also, Lee, I'll say that you are aware of these changes in these structures throughout the song, but you're passively so. 
a song that you find very emotive, something very interesting that makes you want to listen to it over and over again, you innately, passively experience that you resonate with those changes and those augmentations, because without them, you would find the music to be perhaps too static or less emotive. You just haven't identified the abstractions and tagged them. So when you were talking just now, I, I, I Googled the person that I'd seen do that. It was Larnell Lewis. Uh, Dromeo did a video with him where he heard a Tool song once and then plays through it. I think it was Tool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. I mean, he's Dennis has tons and tons of different. Or maybe it was videos. no. I, I, maybe it was Inter Sandman. Yeah, it may not have been Tool. I do remember Dennis doing that to Tool, but he might have done many others as well. I don't know. The whole thing is like I don't know. It's fascinating because there's a lot of science and math to the music side that explains why things work the way they work. And it's hard for me to imagine having the skills to be able to just act on that. I don't know. So like, yeah, I'm in awe of like anybody that can do this and you know, there's the art side and the science side and they come together and I don't know. The whole thing's really impressive, but I want to talk about one of your other songs too, surf town. Uh, <laughs> sure. Sure. Let's, let's, let's shift gears to surf town. That was, that's a funny one. Why is it funny? So there you go. So tell people about Surf Town. So through a network of wonderful friends, I met this person by the name of Brian O'Hare, and he is one of the most exciting and unique individuals one could ever hope to encounter. He is very passionate He's a person with very strong vision, and I think he might be like six foot two, but he was a gymnast at some point, and avid surfer, and he's a, an illustrator as well. In fact, he ha he has a, a band. He he decided spontaneously. I don't want to tell this story for him because I'm going to get a whole bunch wrong. But from where I'm sitting, he just decided one day that he wanted to start a band and front a band, even though he had absolutely no experience singing or writing songs or being in a band. He just decided one day, and now he has a band called the Dangaleros. And watching his courage and his stamina is really inspirational to me. I wish I had one-tenth of his metal. But long time ago, he decided that he wanted to create a, an animated series called Surf Town. And Brian needed a theme song. And so I, I wrote this song, he gave me some concepts of that he was really into Reverend Horton Heat, for example, and loved the sound, just that vibe, that energy of it. So I, I wrote this song and uh, called upon some good friends, bassist Paul Olgeen and David Heinke on drums, and we recorded at David's brother's studio, which was in a laundromat, a decommissioned laundromat. It had great power, but it was a large, large room with a lot of kind of a garage vibe, which really suited the, the garage surf rock aspect of this song. And so the song was written, the series was never completed and released. And now many years later, Brian decided he wanted to release the song. And here we are. Uh, so you were working on this single or, or a, or a one-off track for the Dangaleros. Okay. So that, that's actually not quite accurate. The Dangaleros didn't exist when that song was written and recorded. So that was probably a good 17 plus years ago. Yeah. Oh, wow. 
And so, but, but it's just now out on Spotify or whatever. So what else has been sitting locked away in the vault that's going to come out or has just came out? Well, locked away in the vault, I would say is it's not locked away in the vault. It's only on Bandcamp. but there is a project that Paul Hansen, Victor, myself, and Thomas Pridgen recorded in 2005, where we were trying to, we were inspired. I wouldn't say trying to, because you know, no one can sound like Square Pusher, but Square Pusher, but we were really inspired by things like Aphex Twin, Square Pusher, and plenty of other music. But coming from a live music perspective, trying to just draw from these different influences with jazz. And we have this this band we call Zenith Patrol, and I'm sure we're going to record another song soon. We've been threatening to do it for years, but it's only released on Bandcamp, partially because of timing issues, and I don't really know how to divvy up. I, we haven't had the time to talk to all the band musicians, get them in the same area to deal with all you know, the the correct uh, splitting of the finances because once you put that release that stuff it's a little bit hard to change the balance of things and I didn't want to step on anybody's toes not to mention we just keep looking ahead it's hard to go back and visit stuff that you've already done it's like going back into your old code in a certain way it, it's there's just a different headspace when you're going back in history and, and trying to do something different with it that I actually mixed analog to tape so that was mixed through a console. And, and may I say that that old console developed so many problems, I would sometimes be paralyzed for a week or two while I was waiting for something to get repaired on it. So that, uh, yeah, and that, that was a fun experience. I do enjoy mixing to tape because of that headspace, the permanence of it. And, and that's performative. Like when you were on this console, you are performing the mix. It, it, it was not an automated console. There was no automation. So I had to manually change the faders on the fly. So do you make notes for that? Do you make timing notes for that? You can, but you tend to just want to be in the moment, almost like a conductor. Just closing your eyes and just really getting a feel for things. So you, again, you're being subjective and spontaneous. You're being, you have to be completely in the moment and then pausing to hear what you did and make sure things were okay. You might be reminded that maybe something was too loud in a certain section. Now, I, I will say that it, it wasn't a full analog process. So I was able to do some pre-automation in the digital session. So I can't you know, claim that I was, you know, playing twister with myself while uh, turning all these knobs and making all these effects go. So it was more broad strokes on the console while it was mixing to tape. But, you, you know, the tape becomes part of the instrument as well, because how you hit the tape changes the sound. That's interesting. There's a lot of, it feels like to me there'd be a lot of pressure. To but it's too. pressure you can't avoid. It's pressure that's built into the system, so you just have to succumb to it. <laughs> Maybe succumb isn't the right yeah. word, because that makes it sound like you're breaking down and having a you know, nervous breakdown of the process from the pressure. Uh, I guess you have to go with the flow. That's a that's a better way to put it. You have to just look at the dynamics of the position you're in and go with the flow in the moment. So hard segue. Do you want to talk about software engineering? Oh, uh, you know, I would love to shift gears to software engineering. I'm I'm a little rusty at it because I've been doing music now for past nine months, pretty full time, but I think about it all the time. What do you think about? I am most fascinated these days 
in software interfaces and human interfaces and the processes of using the tools and how it affects outcomes. That is really what I'm very interested in. It, to frame it a little bit, when I was younger, I thought of software as being commands to make the computer do work. And with these commands, you would create these black boxes where something went into it and something you know, useful came out of it, blinking lights. And I think maybe I was overly inspired by watching too much $6 million man as a child. It happens. Now I look at software as being documentation for intent, for thought. I have something like along those lines. I don't think like the way I frame these things, it's not as heady as, as the direction you're going, but I, I, I've often talked about languages and, and talking about languages that make you as an engineer faster or make you or as an engineer more effective. And then I talk about languages or tools or process to an extent that make teams more effective, that make teams uh, more expressive. And I think there's some overlap with what you're saying. Or at least the way I hear what you're saying, there's some overlap because what's good for the goose is good for the gander is not always the case when it comes to engineering stuff. And you're talking about expressing intent. And when software reaches a certain size, it's not just the software anymore, right? It's the company and it's the organization and it's the team. There's a collection of behavior that you're trying to, I don't want to say control, but you're definitely trying to influence a whole collection of behavior you're trying to influence me behavior of the people behavior of the systems. Like, I don't know. It's really fascinating where these two things converge, where the humans and the tech all converge. I, I agree. I agree. I, I am convinced if it hasn't been done already, I'm sure someone has done it, but there's must be some sort of anthropology of software as a tool and human beings and how they are using these things. And, you know, kind of envisioning a software, a slightly more modern version of 2001, A Space Odyssey, <laughs> you know, with, you know, the discovery of fire here. I think the word, not to pull an $11 word out of the hat, I think inculcate might be the right word is, is how the tools and the interfaces of the tools change thought and practice. Inculcate. That's a new word for me. Yeah. Teach someone an attitude, idea, or habit by persistent instruction. So in this particular case, software and the tooling that, that is built with the software made by humans is then now changing the practices and thoughts and thinking of other humans. And more interestingly, the deviation, the interpretation of that thinking that these humans, these human groups, you can give the same tool to many different people and see pretty drastically different results on all fronts. To pick on what's close to home with me, I mean, that's Python right there. You know, when you give Python, you know, to a student, high, middle school, high school, college, first time learning program, you know, they view Python a certain way. They learn certain things. When you give Python to someone trying to solve a problem in a specific domain and you get into data science and physics and the people that are using Python uh, in those domains, you get a very different output and Python is doing something different for them. Yeah. And then you get into the whole like IPython notebooks, thing, Jupyter notebooks and all that too. But yeah, that's what comes to mind when you talk about that. Cause yes, it's very different. Like who's using Python is very different. The outputs and what they value in the tooling and the language. Now to, to ask you a clarifying question in that citation, 
Is Python the language? Is Python the tool or both? I mean, it's both because there's so much, especially if you get started, when you get started with like, you know, Jupyter notebooks and what people will grab with, um, you know, SciPy or even just, you know, pandas and uh, NumPy, you know, there's a tool to that. It's almost like, um, you know, a very powerful Excel at that level. And then, of course, you have the full power of the language underneath it to do what you need to do. But a lot of people are picking that up as a tool to solve a problem the way you might reach for Excel or spreadsheet or some such. I'm very interested in Go that it is self-contained with a very powerful standard library and the tooling. So you have Go and then you have the tools that are written in Go that come all as one package. In the case of Python, most of the people in my experience that are using the language are not writing HTTP modules from scratch. They are using existing and popular libraries, which also means that in the domain of Python, one must also understand which library to use and why. It's compatibility, it's support in the open source. Similar thing with you know, NPM packages in uh, Node. Yeah, having a grasp of the ecosystems is as important as having a grasp of the language of Python, 100%. And I think a lot of people on the, you know, I keep going on, you know, data science or, or physics or, or machine learning and that crowd, you know, they are very much relying on two or three libraries. And they're probably interacting, depending on the problems that they're solving, they're probably interacting with those libraries more than they are the standard library or vanilla Python itself. People that are doing analytical work, you know, they're just spending all of their time in pandas and using data frames. And, you know, that's data frames can exist in every language. You can have data frames and go. And it's not a new, I mean, not a new thing. I shouldn't say it's not an exclusive thing. I think they got, I think it came from R. I think R had data frames first. I'll have to take your word for it. I, that is definitely not my area of expertise. But well, it's interesting because it gives you this set of ergonomics around working over, you know, tabular and the way I use them, tabular data, uh, where, again, it's very much like you are using Python as a spreadsheet. Like it's very manual. You're not writing, you know, programs like you're saying, like writing HTTP modules or these sorts of things. Yeah, you're not writing out and out programs that are libraries that you're going to share or run or whatever as much as, you know, writing these notebooks and these one off things. That's a tool to solve a specific problem. And a lot of manual interaction with data. That's the thing I run into a lot with people that are doing analysis work is that, you know, they're, everything's manual. It's like, yeah, I load this file and I parse this data and I run these commands and like some of them, even instead of like committing them to GitHub, they will literally just have like the list of things that they run on the data frame itself. And it's like, yeah, load your data in this data frame and then, you know, mutate it in this way. So anyways, but I digress way off topic. I, I, well, hang on a sec. I don't think you digressed at all. I think you brought up a very interesting word, which is ergonomics. And would it be accurate? in your citation of this data engineer, if they're not using GitHub, for example, that maybe the data that they are processing or the answers that they're getting from the data is very ephemeral or changing so quickly that they don't need the sense of permanence or history. They just need to get that. They, for them, it's important to have a black box perspective. I'm honestly asking, I don't have experience I think that's accurate. I think the, you know, the, as a software developer, the code itself is the output. That's how I view like the thing, you know, like what is the most important thing? The code itself. That's the output. That's the thing. And, you know, just to pick on, you know, again, somebody doing analysis work, 
you know, the output for them is a graph. That's the output. Like the code doesn't matter. They got the graph. Um, they can look at something and say, look, you know, when we study this population, we see there is a, you know, bimodal distribution of something in this data. And that's what they care about. And they're done. So once they get that graph, you know, they process this data and they analyze and they get this graph. That's all they care about. And so they get a PNG of a graph and that goes into a Google Doc somewhere and life goes on. You know, the code is... Uh, the ends justify the means sort of thing, right? It's just a way to get there. So what I'm hearing is there's two very different customers for each that it, I'm paraphrasing what I heard you say. I'm not speaking for data engineers because I'm not one that in the example that you cited, their customer is someone who is going to be consuming a relatively static represent visual representation of data or just some, yeah. some representation of data. Whereas for the software engineer, I would say there are two customers. The customer is, whether it's internal to the company or the end company of the end user of the product, as well as the consumers of the code being their future selves or their teammates that also have to work on and maintain and adapt the code. So it's really two different targets and that software engineers Generally, I, I, we're creating a false dichotomy between data engineers and software engineers, but en engineers for do different purposes, different different customers for each. That's right. But anyways, we were, we were off. I still think we're all topic though. So you were talking about Go, and you'd like to go, and I was talking about Python, and um, you were talking about the tool versus the language and all that. So yeah, so just that we're we're both interested in how the 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 language in the ecosystem. I should I should say shouldn't be calling things tools. They're all tools. How the language in the ecosystem is applied by human beings and teams of human beings and, and the effect it has and the effect it has on the human expression. Almost thinking in terms of the French Impressionists, that they were getting away from the the, the, the dark brooding Dutch masters or the attempt of realism through painting. And they were striving to create colors that didn't happen in nature and brushstrokes that weren't photorealistic, of course, isn't the right word, but yeah, that wasn't a reflection of reality. And through these, the color palette as and various brushes and strokes and techniques, etc., they are changing expression. So I do think there's a lot of parallels between the end result of art and the end result of music and the end result of software engineering, not to try to come up with a definition of what is art here, just how humans use tools. And also what's fashionable at a time. I'm curious. That's a big one. So how much do you know about Bob Ross? Not much other than finding him very soothing when I was watching public uh, television home from school with the flu as a child. Right. We all did that. Bob Ross, his process is called wet on wet. Are you familiar with that? I think I can infer, but please do clarify. No, that's it. That's as much as I know. I'd have to Google it. But it's like, you know, they're not, you're not waiting for any one layer to dry. He's working with the oil paints and he's putting them down on top of each other and everything's still wet. I don't know. I just think it's interesting when you talk about art and you compare it to software engineering or software development. I enjoy the technical side of things, like the underpinnings of like why we do what we do. And I feel like if I were a painter, I, if you were to make this analogy of painting and if, if I were to like be learning, you know, the Bob Ross style, 
which is where I was headed with this, like the wet on wet. It's like, I will get so bogged down in just like, oh, it's wet on wet. And like talking about the process, like it doesn't matter that I painted a landscape or that Bob Ross painted a landscape or that somebody uses the, the Bob Ross method to paint this landscape. It's that I would be focused on like, oh yeah, but I used a fan brush and it's wet on wet with a fan brush. And I used a knife and it's like getting into all these technical things and kind of missing the big picture. It's an oil painting of a landscape. It's a mountain. Like the representation, like what, what are you communicating? You're communicating like this is a landscape. And when it comes to like software development stuff, I love all the underpinnings. Like I love all the behind the scenes work. I love all the technical, like this is how we deliver software. Like I really enjoy that. Anyways, that is like a total tangent, but like when you're talking about that and you're talking about painting and I don't know, it's just like I get way too caught up in the technical bits. I do as well. I really love the tools and the toys. I think it's important to have a separate time to play with the toys and then a different time to be creative with the toys. For me, when I, am, when I have to be creative, if my brain has to shift into debugging mode or technical mode at that point, all the, it just lets the air out of the creative tires. So I do try to split my brain in between what is going to be creative or, or learning time versus excuse me, creative time versus tool slash learning time. Everything is a learning process, of course, but that also means that you have to have a time to keep your tools organized in such a way that you're not even searching menus for your tools. Similarly, you have to know in your head or some other way what software tool you're going to load to, to take care of that particular need in front of you, which is why I'm I'm really bullish on certain types of code gen. I really like code. Love the idea of code gen. If you were going to do a bunch of stuff with code gen, would you commit your generated code? That's a trick question. I think it depends on who the customer of the code is and what the actual code is. Generally speaking, I would say, and, and also at what stage of production of the process you're at. If you're in development and your your process allows you to efficiently dynamically generate that code and and to do so in a stable fashion where what's being generated is the same every time you don't have a bunch of tooling shifting below your feet that changes the outcomes where if it's deterministic then i would say absolutely not now on the other hand if you are in a particular situation where it makes sense to version particular images and keep those images separate not dynamically generate them usually in the latter stages of of production then in that case, it might make sense to, I would say it makes great sense to ver to actually store the generated code. It just really depends. And depends on the ecosystem. Like that's, this is kind of, to my understanding, I'm with, with Java, it's kind of built into the system that the, the, you know, are we talking about a, a compiled language, right? A compiled language that, you know, it's, it's, it depends on what the package is, who the customer is. I mean, I played around with this tech from a company called Fern, F-E-R-N. I'll put it in the show notes. And, you know, that was one of the things that I asked them. So you write your, you basically, they have their own interface definition language, IDL, and it's a YAML file and it is a subset of TypeScript. So that was the first thing that they supported. And so you write this YAML file describing your interface and then they generate the TypeScript for you. And I was like, well, you know, I want that TypeScript code in my repo. Like, that's just what I wanted. Like, I want to like, yeah, here's my Fern file. 
And so I want to use the Fern tool to like, you know, analyze that and generate my objects, classes, what have you. Uh, and it didn't do that. It generated them in the CI pipeline. Like basically they host the code generation, like it's all hosted code generation. So they didn't give you the code back. They just gave you an NPM package. And I don't know, that was weird to me. It was weird that it was already like out there and minified and like published. Like, I don't know. And I think it's just the thing. I think I'm just wrong. Like, I'll be honest with you. I think I'm just wrong. I think I'm just wrong to want this. Like, it seems to not be a popular opinion. And I can't really put my finger on what makes me want it. It's like, I want to be able to touch it, see it, you know? And it's just, I don't know. It's like, I don't trust the tooling and I feel like I'm going to upgrade a version and something's going to break and then I'm not going to be able to see. And it reminds me of having to like debug shared objects, right? In Linux, you're like, oh, where's this SO file? And trying to figure out like what's going on. And I don't know, just like flashbacks of, of all the things. So, but I, like I said, I think I'm just wrong to want this. So you've, you've been burned in the past by a particular ecosystem of tooling. Yeah, maybe. How long do you think it will take for you with enough data input to feel comfortable with the, the new tooling? Because all this stuff, it, it moves so fast, especially too fast for my comfort in certain languages and ecosystems. How long do you think it'll take? Is this going to be sort of like an airplane where we just got to let airplanes fly for long enough and crash for long enough until we are comfortable putting our, ourselves and families on them? Yeah, I don't know. Because I mean, like my argument, you know, you talk about uh, straw manning and steel manning and all that, you know, when you're looking at arguments, like, I don't know, like to look at my argument from the other side, like, it doesn't make sense. Like it doesn't really hold water that I'm scared of like not having access to my source code in one way. Like, like the, you know, the trick question is Python a compiled language. So there is a Python bytecode compilation that takes place and see at these PYC files, .PYC. So .py, Python source code, .PYC, Python compiled bytecode. You know, and it's like, I, we don't keep that compiled bytecode around. Like we don't check in the compiled bytecode. And then, right, this is really like kind of the same argument, right? It's like, I'm very okay with like, of course, Python's going to do the right thing and compile this bytecode the right way. And I'm not going to keep the bytecode around, right? I'm always going to trust like how Python operates. And when it generates, you know, the bytecode that's actually being consumed, that's all going to work. So I don't know. I don't know why it's weird or different for me when it gets into data structures. Like if that's the thing, it's just like, it's just a little bit different when it gets into the data structures themselves. So if I'm hearing correctly, you've had enough positive experience with Python and its reliability to to behave in a particular way where you are not concerned about it. But due to previous experiences in Linux, that you have concerns in other domains. Yeah, it just feels like we're adding that whole dynamic library weirdness to things when we are generating objects that are only available remotely. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm picking on Fern a little bit, you know, but that idea that like, okay, here's a YAML file which I think is gross. I wish they didn't use YAML, but you know, here's a YAML file that describes an object and interface and then ma effectively magically right out in NPM, there's a package that provides that like there, that just feels like for right now, for me, that's a step too far. Like I want this stuff locally and obviously it is local because I'm going to have to NPM install it to actually consume it. I don't know. It just, yeah, the whole thing is just, but I'm definitely digging my own hole. I can't defend myself. Like I said, I think I'm just wrong. I certainly hope things get farther and farther away from the low-level code in these areas that engineers can, excuse me, developers, right. can, <laughs> that, 
the developers, the people that are working on the code can keep their mind share at higher level concepts, like the, the data, the customer, what they're trying to accomplish and not, not the low level housekeeping. I think that'll be good for the ecosystem in general and for what it is we all do to be able to operate at that higher level that we can then move more quickly with greater reliability and compatibility across domains. Because that's a, just such a time suck dealing with incompatible when things don't work. We can just put that under one giant umbrella. When things don't work is such a, a horrible friction point for us all. Have you used Rust yet? Well, I've only gone through the tutorials and I think it's really, really neat. I'm looking for an excuse just to to learn. In fact, not to get back to, to the music side of things, but I was really hoping there would be a more robust ecosystem around plugin, audio plugin development, DSP with Rust. Unfortunately, there is not yet. There's, you know, grumblings, but nothing that's that seemed like it was ready for prime time. Maybe I'm wrong. Mm. I don't know. I mean, they build all those in C++ now anyways, right? Yes, yes. Although using a, a library, at least historically, some of them have been written in a library called Juice. Can't I remember it's a framework or a library, but that, you know, there it has its critics as well. Yeah, any, in any case, I'm looking for an excuse to really get into to Rust. I've done a tutorial like three or four times now. It's kind of embarrassing. Like it just nothing really sticks. I think the only thing that's stuck is I can read Rust code down. I don't freak out when I see lifetime reference, like that annotation to mark lifetime and stuff. But yeah, I don't know. And then you see like a lot of people like me. I think if if I were writing a bunch of Rust code today, everything would just be wrapped in Arc. You know, the, what automatic reference counting is that right? Anyways, like, you know, the minute you run into like, oh, I can't, you know, share this thing. It's like, ah, just reference count it. You know, just wrap it. So um, I should learn to do it the right way. And, and the the arc thing, if I remember correctly, it makes something essentially like a global in its particular area. Is that correct or no? Uh, it lets you get around some issues when you're sharing things there and the i was using it i think around a struct like i was trying to pass in um a reference to a struct or something and yeah i don't know but the fix for it was i used an arc and i remember like looking around thinking like oh this is bad because you could just wrap all of these things in arc and then it's going to reference count all that for you and then it stops getting mad but i don't remember enough about like what i was trying to solve what i was trying to do yeah, I just remember that was my hack. Like, you know, like you like you learn those like little things like that's what stuck out from me sitting down fooling around with Rust. I was, I was like, oh, yeah, there are shortcuts, gross shortcuts. <laughs> I mean, shortcuts exist in every ecosystem. And it's funny, the shortcuts that we use to get us out of corners that were painted in at certain points in time. You know, when those those uh, chickens come home to roost and what we have to do to, to redo things or to correct things, it's it's unfortunately things like that are usually so deeply structural. You probably need to rewrite, but hopefully the code is abstracted enough to where you're only having to rewrite one section. But, yeah, it's it's funny. I, I, I cringe. I can recall code written so many years ago where I just had to do something to get something done and then had to face the the music sometime later. Well, I think, you know, the thing with learning languages is, you know, a language 
and then you approach a new language, at least this is with me. I mean, I know it's not just me. I know it's a common thing. You know a language, you approach a new language. So you look for how the new language fits your mental model of the language you know or the language you love in some cases. So it's like, you know, I love Python. So now I want things to look like Python. And then I love Go. So I want things to look like Go. You know, and you go to a language that has more powerful features and you have to think about things a different way. The other thing that's been interesting is learning Go definitely changed how I write Python. And I think for the better, personally, I think it's better. I think writing some stuff in Python, the way you would write things in Go, um, even though Python doesn't have, you know, anything right now in the standard library. Well, I guess it's coming now with the type hints, but they don't have anything to let you really declare the idea of an interface. But yeah, I don't know. I really like where our, where Go pushed me. So I know I would benefit from actually like learning Rust for the way you should write Rust. Like it's always good, you know, to learn the way you should do things when in Rome. Well, let me let me ask you a, a question about this and these practices and how they are mutually beneficial. What if you expand this outside of coding? Can you think of ways that coding has improved, say, maybe how you would you know, wash your car or how you would cook a meal? Probably not in a good way. I would beg to differ. You, you really don't see mutually beneficial practices and algorithms between cooking and, say, coding? The biggest impact it's had on my life is that I now seek optimization probably prematurely in everything. And I get really frustrated if I can't optimize things. Like I was saying, I don't know that it's, it's had a lot of positive. I think it's been more negative. What about for you? Well, you were fishing for cooking. What's on your mind about cooking? Well, not so much about cooking specifically, but I become very happy when I find what seems to be universal truths across different disciplines. Hmm. And for me, it really validates the, the usefulness of that concept. If it behaves, if there's a, an out like cleaning a bathroom or cleaning tiles and suddenly you see that this is behaving like a sort algorithm, Thing, things like that I love. And I mean, there's a book that I've read the first third quite a few times. I've never gotten anywhere past the first third called Gödel Escherbach. And that is writing about uh, the, the mathematical uh, theorems of, of Gödel, Escher's recursion, and the recursion in Bach's music. And if, if you are not familiar with what a crab cannon is, somebody, some people have done brilliant visualizations on YouTube of crab cannons. Check it out. Or maybe, okay. maybe do a search like Bach Mobius, for example. I don't want. I don't want to spoil the reveal. I'd like you to see it for yourself of what that is and give you a greater appreciation. Okay. But also, you know, something that I have been learning about recently from my dear friend and musical guru Jaco Abel is something called rhythmic harmony and clave, and that's another deep universal truth to most music, not Bach interestingly, but I, I won't go too deep in that. I have yet to figure out if there is a similar parallel in software. The, the idea of it is that in most musics that really move the body, whether it's you know, Cuban, Brazilian, uh, musics of Africa, rock and roll, 
that there's an underlying pattern of stresses. It's, it's an underlying rhythmic language that connects them all. And this has been expressed in even uh, like ancient Persia and some of the earlier written music texts. And you know, something that deep and universal that I, I, I didn't know was so universal until Jaco taught me about this stuff. I'm wondering if there are aspects to software or other disciplines that have that same, because I mean, rhythm is in time domain. So it's really hard to say, really hard to say. I'm really, it's, it might be far, far too abstract, but I'm looking for that now as well as of the time domain aspect of, of creating software. Hmm. Yeah. That was far too abstract. I apologize. Uh, uh, you've sent me down a rabbit hole. Oh, you looked up a, what a crab cannon is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And the whole like inversion and yes. Okay. So things to remember is that uh, Baroque music is very similar to jazz or jazz, especially bebop is very similar to Baroque music, despite, you know, being divided by so many years that Bach was able to improvise. And in his improvisation, he was keeping the abstractions of what was going on with the harmonies all in his head, similar to coding. I wish my mind worked that way. I think it does. I think it does, just in a different discipline. No, I mean, I wish my mind worked that way in music. <laughs> oh, okay. Gotcha. It was just this thing about how cognition emerges from hidden neurological mechanisms, an analogy about how individual neurons in the brain coordinate to create a unified sense of coherent mind by comparing it to social organization displayed in a colony of ants. <clears throat> it's interesting. Why have you only made it a third of the way through? Well, a couple of reasons. One is... I think as a uh, teenager, my father said I should read it because it'd be good for me. So I think that's probably uh, one, one of the first <laughs> the first reasons. Uh, it's, like, you're never going to read anything that gets that <laughs> sort of lead in. Go, yeah, sure. Rest his soul. But uh, that could be reason one. Reason two is it's it's fairly it's fairly. I remember it being fairly dry. I haven't cracked the book in you know decades. I need to crack it again. I'm one of those people. I've got a backlog of, of books. I'll have 12 books going at once that I sort of eke my way through and find each one equally fascinating. And uh, that one is going to be one that really will take my attention. All right. We're getting long in the tooth here. What do you want to close out with? Well, thank you very much for having me. This is my first podcast uh, experience. So uh, it's a, it was a pleasure being had. Now, uh, thank you so much, buddy. No, oh, you're doing me a favor, so I appreciate it. I hope I, I hope it's uh, something useful for you. So, people that want to find your music, where should they look? Oh, that's terrible. My, I've, I'm way behind on getting all my stuff, my marketing materials done, cobbler's shoes, and all that. But uh, yeah, please check out the works of, of Paul Hansen and Victor Little and. Uh, Sunk Coast and and others. I hope HarunSarang.com will be active by the time this goes live, but I think you'll beat me to it. <laughs> Just for the record, full disclosure to everyone listening, at the time of this recording, I do not have a website. I mean, I'm, I have a domain name, but I don't have a website. By the time this, gets, this actually gets published, which, by the way, for the record, it's still the holiday season 2022. This is going to get published in 2023. But yeah. 
I feel you, right? Yeah, cobbler's shoes, carpenter's house, mechanic's car. That's how it goes. All right. Well, thank you, Haroon. I appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in for this episode of Fish Shells. For show notes from this episode and more information about the show, visit leetrout.com. Music production by Haroon Serang. We'll see you next time. <laughs>